This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thank you, Kyle. Good morning, Trinity. We are continuing our sermon series in Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. And the ideas that we're going to be talking about involves this feeling of being alienated from God. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. Because the question I get a lot as a pastor is, you know, pastor, uh, I feel like I've been walking this Christian life for a while. I feel like I'm trying to obey God, and yet right now, God just feels so far away. In fact, I don't even really feel connected to God at all. And you know, uh, pastorally, I, I, I don't, uh, I'm not God, and so I, I actually don't know what's going on. I know, though, from the outside and from circumstances, some of these people feel far away from God because they're in a particular dark night of the soul. That God, in his sovereign plan for their lives, has, has put them in a place uh, where they cry out like the psalmist, How long, O Lord? However, I would say a majority have a self-inflicted wound. They've deceived themselves into thinking that they are walking a certain way when really they're walking alienated from God. And self-deception is a powerful thing. None of us like to believe that we can deceive ourselves. We think that we're better than it. A lot of us like to believe uh, that we are always telling ourselves the truth. But some of us have radical experiences where we've recognized just how badly we've lied to ourselves. There are tragic examples of this. On May 22nd of 2021, 21 ultramarathon runners died in China. They were 14 miles into a 62-mile race at high elevation. They just passed the second checkpoint. But weather was starting to get bad. The ones who passed the second check checkpoint would find a 45-degree drop in temperature accompanied by strong winds, rain, and hail. And 21 of them would die. These runners could have been stopped, but race organizers and runners themselves pressed on. In many ways, ultra-marathon runners, of, uh, even just regular marathon runners, are an example of the determination and strength of the human body, mind, heart, and will. And yet we learn in this instance that determination, determination and strength are not enough on their own. Not if you're going to be self-deceived. You see, these runners had a community around them who also willfully ignored the warning signs. They were underqualified in search and rescue. They were ill-equipped for the sudden change of events. This tragedy was a tragedy that involved a tremendous amount of self-deception. Self-deception on behalf of the race organizers, government officials, and the runners themselves. Their self-deception, their self-delusion had serious consequences. And Paul in our passage today says that our own self-deception has serious consequences. That it alienates us from the life of God. It makes us think that we're walking with God when really we're walking like non-believers. Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and he's describing to them what this self-deception looks like. And he uses a whole lot of descriptors in our passage that you're about to see. He uses the word futile, dark, ignorant, hard, callous, sensual, and impure. But to help us categorize them a bit for our purposes today, because really our, the question before us is, how can we be um, undeceived how can we be aware of our own self-deceptions? What categories do we need to look in? And we need to look at our head, 
our heart, and our hands. These are three major categories in which we deceive ourselves. And so these are going to be our three points today. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This comes from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4. Now I say this and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So Paul is writing about the very real consequences of self-deception. And the very real consequences that we have of spiritual self-deception is that we will be alienated from God. And we deceive ourselves in three major categories, our head, our heart, and our hands. But first, I just want to acknowledge how Paul addresses this question. Because he starts in and he says, do not walk as the Gentiles walk. He's not saying uh, that, you know, the Gentiles were too dumb <laughs> and they were self-deceived because uh, they, they, they weren't able to be saved, right? They just didn't have what it took. What he's acknowledging is that Gentile culture was a pagan culture. They didn't have the word of God to have guardrails against their own head, heart, and hands. And so they just wandered around aimlessly. But Paul is writing not to people who are non-Christians, but to Christians. He's saying, you Christians in Ephesus have the ability to deceive yourselves, to think that you're walking with Christ when really you're walking like non-Christians. And if you walk like non-Christians, you will be alienated from the life of God. I mentioned he used a lot of descriptor words, but we're going to do these in three categories where we deceive ourselves with our head, with our hearts, and with our hands. So first is head. Our heads are the first place that self-deception occurs. And then Paul says in verse 17, here's how he describes it. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, verse 17. Futility of their minds. Futility means pointless walking pointlessly. The first intellectual danger that we have in deceiving ourselves is that we are just open to formation by anything that the world has to offer because we're wandering through it aimlessly. And I think of all of the descriptors that Paul uses, this one might be the most dangerous for our current cultural climate. And do you know why? The endless scrolling. It's futile, right? It's pointless. We don't know why we're doing it. And what it does is it opens us up to a variety of uh, malformed practices. This is often where our intellectual self-deception starts. We're coaxed into rage by whatever news article or post we read. We're blown about by conspiracy theories that claim truth, truth. We are excited by passing images. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we have something to say that a response is actually merited, and that we are the ones qualified to give it. We deceive ourselves into thinking that research done over the internet yields reliable results. But it's not just the internet that is pointless. I just think it's one of the big ones in our life. 
endless sports stats, endless podcasting, endless life hacks. We read, we listen to, and we watch pointless things. But Paul doesn't just say that they're pointless. He also says that they darken our understanding is the next phrase that he used. A lot of times we know that we're engaging in pointless things. We know that we're just kind of filling the space in our days. And a lot of you would say, Pastor, why, why are you hammering my like uh, innocent little habits? And it's because they're not innocent. All of us know that. They malform us. They darken our understandings. Social media doesn't make us better people. It makes us feel inferior, jealous, Binge-watching TV leaves us lonely, often literally alone in the dark by ourselves. Being lost in the world of podcasts or sports or news is, an all, is all just an attempt to stuff ourselves full of ourselves. Claiming to be expanding our intellectual knowledge, we're becoming darkened in our understanding. And we feel alienated from God. Why don't I feel close to God? Many of us deceive ourselves into thinking that we're going to feel close to God by expanding these intellectual horizons, but spending no time with God himself. Remember how I mentioned those people who don't feel close to God? Many of them will say when I ask them that they read their Bibles and they pray. Now, this is about to be a really convicting part for me myself. I just want you to know I'm with you as I read this. We read our Bibles for five minutes and we pray for two, but that same day we'll watch two hours of Netflix, listen to four podcasts, read six news articles, watch the game, read about the injuries, rage tweet for 40 minutes, and scroll ourselves to sleep. Pointless, dark, and so of course we're alienated from God. What else would we expect? Our heads aren't attached to God in any meaningful way. We're not thinking about him, considering his ways and his laws, speaking with him through prayer. Again, I just want to mention that I'm a millennial pastor. <laughs> I am bound by these same things, and I'm a pastor, intellectually deceiving myself that all these other things are going to bring me closer to God. I want to be clear, though, I'm not saying that we can't ever have fun and then we spend all of our days just reading our Bibles, praying, fasting, evangelizing, and preaching. God gave us hobbies, passions, jobs, music, art, poetry, and theater. He gave us sports and nature, and he gave us, as hard as it is to believe, politics and social spaces to interact in. He gave us food and the ocean. But our intellect needs to be reoriented, not so that we can stuff ourselves full of ourselves, our intellect's cannot be marked by simple futility, but a purposefulness of worshiping God with all of our lives. Look at verses 20 and 21. We're going to need to learn Christ, to be taught in him because the truth is in Jesus. Verse 23 says that we need a renewal of our minds that only Christ has to offer. We're going to have to learn how to rightly enjoy Netflix and social media and sports, art, poetry, and the ocean. We're going to have to rightly learn how to enjoy food and drink. And we're going to need to learn it from Jesus. 
I think one way to examine your uh, intellectual self-deception is to ask yourself whether this thing that you're doing is causing you to think more about God or think less about God. I can promise you that if it's spiraling you into rage tweeting, it's not causing you to think more about God. But why is intellectual self-deception so powerful? Like, why do we inevitably drift towards the dark and the pointless? Why left unchecked is that self-deception so powerful? And that brings us to our second point, it's because of our hearts. Because contrary to Rene Descartes, we don't exist because we think. Do you guys remember Rene Descartes from school? I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really remember him. But I worked for a valet company in Chicago during undergrad that was called Valet Descartes. We parked cars. And so the slogan was, we park, therefore we are. <laughs> the reason I know that Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, is because of a job I held in undergrad. Because contrary to Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am, the Bible has a much more robust view of humanity than just our brains. It actually says that we have something much deeper. Our desires and our wills are also at play. We don't just deceive ourselves intellectually, we deceive ourselves affectively. That's affectively with an A. Um, affectively just refers to our emotions, but I was afraid that if I said emotionally, uh, we would just think of kind of our surface level emotions and not our desires and wills. We deceive ourselves with our deepest emotions. And Paul uses two phrases to get at this. He says, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That word ignorance there is interesting uh, because some sort of ignorance uh, is innocent, like me with how pineapples grow. Some of you may remember Nick and um, Rachel Thornton. Uh, when they were reassigned, uh, Rachel gave us uh, a bunch of plants, and one of those plants was a pineapple plant. And this Kansas boy was fully convinced up until that moment that pineapples grew on trees. And newsflash, they do not. They grow in like a bush thing in a pot or on the ground. And then they grow out of a little stalk and a fruit thing. I did not know this. This is technically called ignorance, right? I would have said pineapples grow on tree. However, we would forgive that sort of ignorance. And that's not really the ignorance that Paul is kind of talking about here. Paul is talking about a willful sort of ignorance. A willful sort of ignorance. One that persists in the belief in the face of contrary information. And so he uses another descriptor right with it. And he says, due to their hardness of heart. So Paul is saying that uh, there's two roots to this ignorance. They will it, but they also have hard hearts. So I just want to ask this question, where do our affections, our emotions, our wills and desires deceive us the most? It has to do with our willful ignorance and hardness of heart. Where do we do that? I'll, I'll give you two examples. One has to do with our fears, and one has to do with us in conflict. So first, our fears. I'm just going to pick an example. Are you controlled by fear of what is happening in our country? It might be rightly concerning, but what do we have to fear? We are citizens of a better country. We are citizens of the light. Do we emotionally deceive ourselves into thinking that this country and the next are the same? Is your affective life your emotions, your wills and desires oriented and controlled by the same things that pagans are? Or is it controlled by Christ? What fear rules over you? Is it fear of losing your stuff? 
God has better stuff for you. Is it fear of you losing your land? God has better land for you. Is it fear of losing your country? God has a better country for you. Is it fear of losing your family? I don't know if you remember this Bible verse, but it says, whoever does not leave his father and his mother and his brother and follow me, there's a better family for you. What about fear of losing your body? God promises resurrection. What about fears of losing your intellect? It needs reforming. What about fears of losing your freedom? You don't want to be free. You need to belong to God. Where we deceive ourselves effectually is seen most clearly in the fears that rule over us. But there's another example, and that's in conflict. Whether it's marital, familial, occupational, just between friends, Specifically when we think we are so right. You ever just been sure that you were right? I mean, you were so sure that you were right that you couldn't sleep at night. You stayed up that whole night thinking about how to justify all the ways that you are right. Our affections, our will and desire to be right, to be righteous, leads us into downplaying our own participation into the conflict to minimizing our own responsibility. And our hardness of heart says we would rather be right on principle than restore a relationship. I find that Christians of all people tend to be really hard of heart and really willfully ignorant of how their own desires control them. We have a tendency to know what is wrong with everyone else but ignore the plank sticking out of our own eye. We are hypocrites like everyone is, Everybody's a hypocrite, but we're not nearly humble enough for people that declare that they need salvation. We're the Pharisees praying, thank you, Lord, I'm not like that man, instead of the man over in the corner who says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So what do we need to not be so hypocritical, to be so deceived by our own affections? What do we need to soften our hearts and break our willful ignorance? Well, look at verse 22. You need to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires, and verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, I know I use verse 23 with the intellectual part, and I think it does belong there, but I think that end of verse 22 helps us highlight what we need to understand that our desires are deceitful that we need to put off, and it's humility. Humility to accept God's word that says our heart is deceitful above all things. Humility to understand that we have not put off all of the old man yet and that our affections still profoundly control us. An effective humility, a healthy suspicion of our own motives and of our own affections. Now, God gave us our emotions. I'm not talking about being emotionless. Often when we are angry at something, there probably is a good reason to be angry about it. But is our anger about it in proportion to God's anger about it? Or do we embellish that anger with our own pride and arrogance? We don't just deceive ourselves with our heads. We also deceive ourselves with our hearts. There's also another way we deceive ourselves, and that's with our hands. And for this, I would say we deceive ourselves behaviorally. Now, I hesitated on the word behaviorally um, because it also just, you know, sounds like be, be better. <laughs> But here's how it works. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 19. He says, they have become callous. Do you know when you get calluses? It's usually when you're working with a particular tool and it rubs your hand or, or another part of your body in a particular way and your skin will often blister first. 
And in some sense, that's your skin warning you, like, I'm not supposed to be used this way. Stop it. But eventually your skin kind of gives up, right? And just says, all right, well, then I just, I got to become stronger. And it starts putting layers over layers on top so that it deadens the pain. I need to develop a thick outer layer to stop feeling this. This is what sin does when it rubs up against our souls. It makes us dead to the feeling that's actually damaging us. You see, calluses of the hand can often be a sign of love. They can be what uh, someone wears on their hands because they've served their family well. But calluses of the soul do not work that way at all. Calluses of the soul are worrisome. Calluses of the soul signify that someone is deadened to the particular damaging effects of sin. Many of us have had our souls calloused by others, by sins done against us. We've never really reflected on the fact that we should um, interpret the sins going on around us in a particular way because we've been harmed. But that's not really what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the calluses that you form yourself. People that walk full well knowing into it. Here's how I find myself particularly vulnerable to this. Thinking that all things are lawful for me, I can engage in watching some movies, some stand-up comedians, listening to some music that is not helpful for me. Have you ever heard that verse, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful? Paul actually says this in another one of his letters, and I don't have time to unpack all of what that means here. I'm just going to say that there are some behaviors that I participate in that deceive me and callous my soul. The further examples that Paul gives of what this callousness looks like are instructive. If we keep reading, he says that we can give ourselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So let's take these two examples. Sensuality means exactly what you think it means. Paul is choosing his words carefully here. And so I'd just like to ask you, do you think that Christians really live their sexuality any differently than the world? Of course, we define our sexuality differently. We define it differently, but do we live it differently? Do we really use our sexuality for God's glory? Or are we content to use our sexuality for our own self-satisfying ends? God doesn't have just a list, a list of sexual rules he wants followed. He wants people formed by a particular ethos, a holy and righteous and life-giving ethos. A sexuality that is rightly used it doesn't bring isolation and estrangement or abuse or self-service, but self-sacrifice, glorifying in another. We behaviorally deceive ourselves by misusing our sexuality. The shows that we watch, the music that we listen to, the advertisements that we stand, the clothes that we buy, the romance novels that we read, and the fantasies that we entertain, the list goes on and on. We deaden ourselves to that which is damaging. And so we live a life alienated from God. What about the other phrase, greedy to practice every kind of impurity? I wondered if you, uh, have you ever wondered this, why some people get to sin however they want and never get punished? It's astonishing how often I hear Christians ask that question, not because it's necessarily unnatural. I think we've all asked it but because of just how ludicrous it is inside of a Christian worldview. We are greedy to practice the impurity that they are practicing and get away with it? We are so greedy that we would entertain the idea of stooping to the same levels? 
desensitized to the severity of sin, we would modify our behavior just a little bit more to see how much we can get away with. Behaviorally, we alienate ourselves from God by deadening ourselves to the severity of sin around us and by participating in the very same things as those who don't walk in the light. In order to not be deceived behaviorally, we're going to need, in verse 24, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, verse 24. So we've learned that in order to not be deceived intellectually, we're going to need to learn the truth of Christ, what is really meaningful. In order to not be deceived effectually, we're going to need true humility. And in order to not be deceived by our behaviors, we're going to, need to, ha- we're going to have to need to be holy. But we deceive ourselves if we think that we can accomplish any of these things on our own. You know that race in China where the runners died? The article that I was reading was from the LA Times, and it was telling an interesting story about uh, somebody else who was in the area at the time, and it was a shepherd keeping watch over his flock. A native of the land, he was aware of what was happening, aware of the dangers, and he didn't deceive himself. He accurately read the skies, and he understood the dangers that were at hand, and he took appropriate cautions. He took shelter in a cave. And a lot of times I think that we read passages like this and we say, that's exactly what God wants me to do. He gave me his word so that if I learn the truth, I practice humility, and I live a holy life, I'll know how to escape the coming judgment. Life won't ever feel like it's slipping away because we'll always know where the shelter is. Isn't that what verses 20 through 24 are saying? Don't be deceived anymore. Learn God's truth. Study his word. Put off your old self in humility and put on your new self in holiness. Be better. Be smarter. Be more holy. But actually, these verses 20 through 24 don't just say, be better, be smarter, and be more holy. Look at verses 23 and 24. Paul says, and these verbs here are in the passive sense, uh, passive mood, tense, uh, which means that they're done to us. We need to be renewed in our minds. We need to be created. You didn't create yourself, and you can't recreate yourself. And those runners in that race, in their self-deception, were already lost. The self-deception is such a powerful thing. Because even if we had all of this, we, we wouldn't be able to do it on our own. We would take this like the runners did, and we'd keep running out in the cold and the danger, and we'd be striving after achieving it on our own. But this LA Times article talking about the shepherd was fascinating in China. They called him the good shepherd, which I found fascinating. Because here's what happened. He's sleeping out the storm in the shelter of his cave with his sheep, He's not deceived by what's happening around him. But when he hears the cries of the runners, he leaves the shelter of his cave and goes to rescue six of them, one at a time, carrying them on his back, back to the cave, and they live. Jesus is called the good shepherd in John 10. And he leaves his sheepfold and goes to rescue us. 
to renew our minds, to recreate us with his own body and his own blood. We need to be rescued from our own self-deceptions. We don't just need to be better and be smarter. And we're not just dependent upon Jesus rescuing us from our own self-deceptions when we become Christians and become baptized. We need to be rescued by Jesus every single minute of every single day because the old self is still there and needs to be peeled off layer by layer. And as Jesus carries us from death into this new life, we are renewed and recreated so that we no longer hold on to those self-delusions like we once did, but we hold Christ at the center. Christ renews the spirit of our minds. Christ humbles our sin-hardened and willfully ignorant hearts. Christ is the only one with true holiness and righteousness, and he gives it to you, clothes you with his righteousness and holiness. The only way to not be self-deceived is to have Christ at the center of every single thing you do, the center of your head, the center of your heart, and the center of your hands. If right now you're feeling alienated from the life of God, I want you to read this passage and know that Jesus goes to rescue you from your own self-deceptions. That you can actually study his word and learn, find the truth in him. You can peel back the layers of your own sin-hardened heart and your heart can be softened and made new. And you can actually live in holiness and have calluses removed. Be sensitive to the things that God is sensitive about and be made again in Christ's image. The life of God is not found in our own strength and power of being better so that God will give us a little bit of his life. Jesus gave all of his life and said, follow me. Amen. So we have all sorts of self-deceptions, intellectual, affective, and behavioral. But at this table, when we come together, we remind ourselves that we are in fact self-deluded and that there is only one who can wake us up. There's only one who is the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one on whom all of our hopes rest that we might be made new and that we might experience the life of God. And it's when he gave his life for ours. His body and his blood for us. The night that Jesus was betrayed, when his disciples rejected him, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, This blood is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. This meal is for those who have acknowledged that they are full of self-deceptions. This meal is for those who have had the shepherd rescue them, have been united to his life in baptism, and say that they are dependent on him and him alone. If this is not true for you, if you've not been united to Jesus in baptism, if you aren't sure about Jesus' claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, I'd ask you not to participate of this meal. Um, 
and come and partake on a day when you are assured of those things. Come talk to Kyle or myself. Uh, we would love to answer any questions you have about that uh, to unite you to Jesus in baptism and welcome you into this covenant community where we proclaim our dependence upon Jesus every single week. Now, in a moment, I will pray, and then we can come down the center aisle. We've got this station uh, and then uh, the station over here. Uh, I believe the gluten-free is on that side. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm, I'm assuming it's over there. It's over there? Thank you. Um, so you're going to want to go that way, uh, as well as uh, regular bread is over there as well. Uh, there is red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. And if you would, please pray with me. <clears throat> Our good and faithful shepherd, we thank you for this reminder of the great salvation that you give us. That you rescued us and you continue rescuing us from our self-delusions. This morning, as we eat your body and drink your blood, may, may we be reminded tangibly how dependent we are upon you for renewed minds, for renewed affections, and for renewed behaviors. And we ask this in your most powerful name. Amen.